Let us go to God in prayer. Almighty and most magnificent, glorious, kind, loving, powerful, and understanding Father which art in heaven, hallowed and holy be thy name. Father, thank you for forgiving us our sins and our trespasses, Father. And thank you for helping us to understand thy word whenever we read it, hear it, or see it, Father. Let thy word dwell within us. Let us be able to bring it forth and use it again with ease, accepted, well, and confidence the way you want it done, Father, so that we may be your bright, shining lights unto this world, Father. Thank you, Father, for helping me to preach your word and teach your word the way you want it done, Father, giving you the glory and the praise and the honor. Bless us going out. Bless us coming in, Father. Be with us always. Through thy loving and wonderful Son, we come before you, Father, saying, let your will be done. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. So, <clears throat> my sermon title today is, Is There Evidential Fact for Jesus the Christ? Or is he a fictional myth? Hmm, what do you think? So, we're going to start off this way. You know, there once was a man called Simon Greenleaf. He was born in 1783 and he died in 1853. Greenleaf was an agnostic, a skeptic or doubter of the existence of God. Some even say he was an atheist, a non-believer in the existence of God, who believed the resurrection of Jesus the Christ was either a hoax or a myth. Greenleaf was was not a stranger though to the truth and to the proof of the truth. He was a principal founder of the Harvard Law School and a world-renowned expert on evidence. When it comes to evidential fact, proving evidential facts that you can use in a court of law, Greenleaf was to this what Michael Jordan is to, and LeBron James out of basketball, what Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were to the civil rights movement, what Kurt Franklin is to gospel rap, James Brown is to soul music, and B.B. King is a was to the blues. Greenleaf, you all, was the expert, the real deal. He was the man. When it came to authenticating evidential facts that you could use in a court of law, he was a world-renowned expert on evidence. So Greenleaf, you all, was challenged one day by one of his students to consider the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Greenleaf set out with confidence to disprove the resurrection, but this world-renowned expert on evidential truth, the facts ended up concluding that the resurrection of Jesus the Christ was indeed fact, not fiction. Being a man of conviction and reason, and in accordance with his conclusions, Greenleaf converted from agnosticism to Christianity. Hallelujah, Walls. That's an awesome thing. Greenleaf, you all, applied the evidentiary rule of his day to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he concluded that the admissible evidence omitted or given out thereby was sufficient to prove in any unbiased, hmm, fair court of law, that the resurrection of Jesus the Christ was indeed fact, not a hoax, not a myth or fiction. In short, Greenleaf reasoned that copies of the original gospel extent, or if you will, gospels known to be in, ex in existence in his time, 
were at least as authentic, if not more authentic, than other works of antiquity or ancient times. That the authenticity of the Gospels were and are acceptable in courts of law. That the veracity or truthfulness of the testimony contained therein were demonstrable, you all, proven, confirmed by internal and external examination, by examining the consistencies and resolving the paradoxes contained between them, and by comparing the gospel accounts to cooperating, to cooperating uh, works of other known non-Christian writers of the time, such as uh, Josephus or Yosef ben Metanyahu, who was a first century Roman Jewish scholar, historian, and not a Christian. Tacitus, a Roman senator <clears throat> and historian, and a non-Christian. Satanus, a Roman historian, not a Christian. Pliny the Younger, a Roman official and historian, also a non-Christian. And other uh, satirists and detractors and, and, and doubters and pessimists and skeptics, etc., of the time who, in some way, form, or fashion, talked about Jesus and his followers and the things they did. With that being said, <clears throat> the most plausible, the most reasonable conclusion to be drawn from all of this was that Jesus of Christ not only lived and died, but that he arose alive and well from the grave with all power. We have historical and evidential facts, you all. It's not a hoax or a myth, but a provable fact. It's not fiction or speculation, amen, somebody. It's not conjecture or lie, but a provable fact, a scientific fact, a historical fact, an evidential fact, a provable truth. Hallelujah, rocks. We don't need faith for this. Not for this. There is hard in your face evidence, truth, amen, that Jesus of Christ lived and after being dead and buried, arose from the grave alive and well with all power. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, somebody. So thank you, Jesus. Glory, praise, and honor be unto Jehovah Almighty. You know, let me ask you, why else? <clears throat> Would all those disciples and the 12 apostles, not to mention the apostle Paul, who, if you didn't know, was somebody. A Pharisee taught by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a first century Jewish rabbi and a preeminent leader in the Jewish Sanhedrin, a doctor of Jewish law. Paul had it going on, y'all. <laughs> Why would Paul and these others give up everything they had or could possibly ever have had on this earth to face an executioner's death. All of them, some say, with the exception of John. Paul got his head chopped off, y'all, by a Roman executioner. Certainly, certainly no man would do so for a lie, would he? Let alone all 13 of them. Ladies and gentlemen, 
We've got more factual evidence today in the 21st century than Greenleaf did when he came to his evidential conclusive fact that the gospels are true, not a hoax, not a myth, not a fable. We've got more historical, archeological, scientific, factual evidence, truth, that Jesus the Christ lived, died, and arose from the dead alive and well with all power, the head over all things in the church in the 21st century than Mr. Greenleaf had in the 19th century. Hallelujah, somebody. <laughs> Not with, it, 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 it's, it, we've got more proof, and that proof is not with what I feel evidence. It's not with, it, 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 it's, it's, just, it's not what I think evidence, that's it. It's not what I believe evidence, but solid in your face evidence, hallelujah walls. You can touch it, you can see it, you can, you can prove it scientifically, historically, archeologically, hard factual evidence, Amen, somebody. Somebody should be shouting right now. What are you waiting for? So, with that in mind, let's consider his argument. Greenleaf concludes in his argument by, he concludes his argument by, by inviting, to come on in, his readers to kindly consider objectively the consequences and implications the lives of the apostles. The lives that the apostles lived, lives lived under the greatest discouragements in the face of the most appalling terrors. Their rabbi, their spiritual leader, you all, and savior, Jesus of Christ, having recently perished as an accused malefactor, a criminal, a lawbreaker, or if you will, a sinner by the sentencing of a religious and civil public tribunal. The guy they looked up to as their rabbi, their hero, their deliverer, their Messiah, the Son of God Almighty was scourged, tortured, and crucified, pierced in the side. And oh yeah, he died right in front of their faces. This radical leader, hmm? you all do know that Jesus the Christ was radical, right? No? Listen, Christ's faith sought to overthrow all the religious, all the religions of the world, the whole world. The laws of every country were against the teachings of Christ's apostles. You'd think they might have had a little, just a little bit of trepidation there, you know, fear. Why would you do this if it was not real? The interest of and passions of all the rulers and great men in all the world were against these Christians, against these Christian apostles and disciples. The fashion of the world was against them propagating, spreading, proclaiming, preaching this new faith, even in the most non-offensive and peaceful manner. These disciples of Christ could expect nothing, you all, nothing but contempt, opposition, oppression, disdain, loathing, 
reviling, hatred, bitter persecution, stripes from the whip, imprisonment, torment, torture, and cruel, cruel deaths. Yet, yet, this Christian faith, the teachings of Jesus the Christ, they zealously and enthusiastically did propagate, spread, preach, and all these miseries they endured, undismayed, undiscouraged. More than that, they did it happily, you all, rejoicingly, with a song of jubilation and praise in their hearts and on their lips. Hallelujah, somebody. What about us? Is that what we do? Or do we gripe and complain about everything because we don't truly understand or dare I say it, believe this Christian thing. We haven't totally committed or devoted all we are and have to Christ. Well, I digress. Let me not get into trouble. Moving on. As King Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, the survivors, the apostles, the evangelists, these disciples only persecuted or prosecuted is the best word, is, is the correct word. Their work for the church of Christ, you know, the church that Christ built, with increased vigor and determination, pressing ever towards the mark. Glory, hallelujah, somebody. Ladies and gentlemen, in all the annals of military warfare, you will scarcely find an example of the like, of the heroic dedication, of the devotion and faithfulness, of the patience and unwavering courage of these apostles. Amen, Walls. The apostles had every possible incentive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great facts and truths they were asserted. Uh, you know, the, the, the why, the what, the when, the who, the how, and the, is this for real? <laughs> and these reasons were pressed upon their attention with the most miserable, you all, miserable and intense frequency by the people of the world. The apostles were constantly being beaten, mocked, persecuted, spat upon, burned at the stake, crucified, saved. See, they were, they were served up to, up to wild animals to be maimed to death and eaten. And let's not forget having their lives threatened on a daily basis. I ask you, for what? For teaching the doctrine of Christ, for their faith in Christ, for living their lives according to the doctrine of Jesus of Christ. It was therefore impossible, totally unbelievable, that the disciples could have persisted in affirming the truths they were narrating had not Jesus the Christ actually lived, died, and arose from the dead alive and well with all power. Had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact, if it were morally possible for them to have been deceived in this matter, they 
had every human motive to lead them to discover the truth of the matter and admit their error to turn away from this doctrine that was bringing them so much anguish, ridicule, disdain, horrible torture, and horror, horrible and horrific deaths if they had discerned that the doctrine of Christ was false. To have persisted in so gross a falsehood after it was known to them was not only to encounter for life all the evils which man could inflict upon them and the ones they loved from without, but to endure also a sharp, the sharp pains of inward and conscious guilt with no, you are no hope of future peace, no testimony of a good conscience, no expectations of honor or esteem among men, no hope of happiness in this life and no hope of happiness, Lord have mercy in the life to come. No hope of wealth or riches. Didn't Peter in Acts three and six say to the crippled man, uh, silver and gold have we none. So why, 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 I ask you, would they put themselves through this for a fable, a hoax, a lie? They had to believe, they had to believe, no, you know, no, that's not good enough. They had to know in their heart of hearts, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the gospels of the Bible were and are true, amen? That it was and is the real deal, a true fact, amen, rocks, that Jesus the Christ lived, died, and arose from the grave, alive, well, with all power. Glory, hallelujah, praise his holy name. Now, I know, in some instances, a good man or woman may fall for a lie. It has happened to the best of us, right? My pretty girl. Uh, and y'all ladies, that pretty guy, you know, they can say stuff and we just fall for it. But when under, when under strong temptations, right? Yet a good man or woman is not found persisting for year after year after year in deliberate or intentional falsehoods. Asserted, mind you, with the most solemn, dignified, or awe-inspiring appeals to God without the slightest temptations or motives and against all the opposing interests which reign in the human breast. All the things our worldly flesh desire. So why would the apostles do that? Well, you say, preacher, they, just, they were just evil men following an evil leader. Well, that leader was dead now. They didn't have to follow him anymore. So if they are supposed to have been evil men, it is unbelievably incredible even that such evil men should have chosen this form of imposture, encouraging as it does sincere repentance, the utter forsaking and abhorrence of all falsehoods and of every other sin the practice of daily self-denial, self-abasement, and self-sacrifice, 
the crucifixion of the flesh with all its earthly appetites and desires. And indifference, an indifference to the honors and the haughty contempt. They had a haughty contempt of the vanities of the world and instilling perfect purity of heart and life and the intercourse of the soul with heaven. It is unbelievably incredible even that bad men should invent falsehoods to promote the faith of the God of truth, love and self-sacrifice. What you say? The God of the Bible, almighty Elohim. This supposition or this speculation is suicidal. It's crazy even. Why would they do that? And if they did believe in a future state of retribution, a heaven or hell, if you will, an afterlife, they took the most certain course, if false witnesses, to assure for themselves a one-way ticket, do not pass go, do not collect $200, straight to Sheol. Didn't get that Hades, didn't get that one, or hell. Amen. And if still being evil men, they did not believe in future punishment, how came they to invent that very thing, which was to destroy all their prospects or hopes of worldly contentment, worldly happiness, worldly honors, worldly praise, worldly riches, and ensure their misery in this life. That's one of those things that makes you go, hmm, right? Amen. Amen, somebody. From these absurdities, there is no escape, you all. It just does not make good common sense that they were bad or evil men. After weighing evidence, the only thing that makes sense is that they were good men, declaring, testifying to that which they had carefully observed and considered and well knew to be true. To the evidence they had witnessed firsthand. They were eyewitnesses, you all, that Jesus the Christ lived and did what the gospel says he did. Yeah, that's it. That he died, yes, and arose from the grave alive. Hallelujah. The head of all things in the church, amen, with all power, is the only thing that makes sense. The only thing that fits the overwhelming amount of evidence that we have in front of us. Amen. So thank you, almighty Jehovah, for giving us so much physical evidence that we can see it, touch, and hear. Isn't God wonderful, you all? And awesome. I have to agree with Mr. Greenleaf that no man who deals honestly with his own mind and heart can entertain a reasonable doubt that the Bible is indeed, as Mr. Greenleaf's evidence attests, the word of Almighty God. I know of no one, let alone anyone of scholarly import, who questions whether the original Gospels actually existed. They do not question whether the copies we have today trace back to an original source, or more precisely, four original sources, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John. There is too much similarity between the copies we have today to conclude that they emanated or came from anything other than an original source. Scholars refer to these originals as the autographs, huh? Presuming they existed as the overwhelming weight of scholarship and evidence suggests. Then they were as originals necessarily authentic by definition. One cannot challenge the authenticity of something acknowledged to be an original. The data in favor of this authenticity of the New Testament manuscript copies we have today, including the Gospels, are so, so overwhelming it would take days, you all, for us to properly go through all the evidential data. Time will only allow us to scratch the surface today. The two other facts which I would like to add to the previous information on which I will rely on to scratch the surface today are the proximity of the copies to the originals in time. You know, how old the earliest copies are and the number of copies in existence today. We will then compare those factors to non-biblical, non-biblical works of antiquity. These two factors are the most significant because one, as lawyers and historians will tell you, the closer a document is in time to the event it describes, the more reliable it is. And second, the more copies we have of those documents, the better we can compare them to each other and thus gauge their comparison to the original. So come close, come close. <clears throat> Listen, the interval between the dates of the original composition of the Bible Gospels and the earliest extent evidence of the Bible Gospels becomes so, so small as to be in fact negligible or insignificant. Hallelujah, somebody, did you hear that? Especially when compared with dates of non-biblical, academically accepted historical documents, such as those detailing Roman history. And as if that wasn't enough, my brothers and sisters, God just keeps giving us more and more hard in your face. You can see it and touch it, evidence, because even more evidence has been discovered since 1943. In an article published March 5th, 2007, Discovery News Channel contributor, Jennifer Viegas reported that the oldest known manuscript copies of the Gospels of Luke and John date from 175 to 225 AD and were found in 1952 at Pabao, Egypt, near the ancient Deshani headquarters of the Pacomian order of monks. They are presently, the, the, the copies are presently housed in the Vatican where they are on display and available for scholarly review. The oldest extent fragments of Mark contained in Papyrus 45, along with parts of Matthew, Luke, and John, date no later than 250 AD, and the oldest still existing manuscript fragment of Matthew, the Magdalene manuscript fragment of Matthew's 26 
purports to coexist with the original. Papyrus 45 was also found in Egypt and is currently housed at the Chester Beattie Library in Dublin, Ireland, except for one leaf containing Matthews 25, 41 through 26, 39, which is housed at the Altreichek National Bibliotech, I think it's what it's called, in Vienna. Uh, historically speaking, these copies are remarkably close in time to the originals of which they purport to be copies. We have copies of the Bible Gospels commencing within 25 to 100 years from the writings of the original. And that means that people who were witnesses to these events were still alive when they were written. Like the more than 500 people Jesus appeared to after rising from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15 and 6. Whereas in the case of non-biblical ancient historical texts, the copies may have 500, 800, or 1,000 plus years of elapsed time between the originals and the earliest uh, surviving copies. Which means all the eyewitnesses to these non-biblical events were dead, were dead by the time these copies were penned. Ergo, pay attention, ergo the Bible is by far the most evidentially provable ancient historical document known to mankind. Hallelujah rocks. <laughs> to disavow the gospel means you would have to disavow every other ancient historical document ever discovered or taught in the halls of academia. Glory, hallelujah, somebody. With respect to numbers, we have in our possession today over 5,300 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, of which the Gospels are the first four books, another 10,000 Latin Vulgates, and 9,300 other earlier versions giving us more than 24,000 extents or still existing manuscript copies of at least portions of the New Testament. Of those, 230 manuscript portions predate 600 AD, consisting of 192 Greek New Testament manuscripts, five Greek lectionaries containing scriptures, and 33 translations of the Greek New Testament. Each of these manuscripts can be and has been compared with the others for consistency. Guess what, you all? They were found to be consistently credible. Therefore, even though we do not have the original, the sheer number of consistent manuscript copies we do have weigh heavily in favor of their authenticity as accurate copies of the originals. Comparing the above with non-biblical works of antiquity, the authenticity of which few, if any, think to question is like comparing the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa building in Dubai, consisting of some 162 stories of floors, or let's say of evidence, 162 stories of floors of evidence to a one to two story building of evidence. It takes far more faith, you all, to believe in the secular religion of Darwinistic 
transitional evolutionary theory or belief on the origin of species by means of natural selection or its other title, hmm, the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life, talking about prejudice, than it does to believe in the gospels of the Bible. So what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that the overwhelming amount of solid physical evidence God has left for us that proves his existence dwarfs, dwarfs the proof we have for the existence of any other ancient historical figure that we accept as historical fact that they existed. Evidence for these other ancient historical figures when compared with the evidence for the existence of God are, are, are they just minuscule, tiny, almost non-existence. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, you all. Thank you, Jesus. Now, 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 I want you to, don't sit on this. I want you to run and tell that to the world. Come on, church. For example, let me give you some examples so you can take to your teacher at school. Aristotle lived from 384 to 322, uh, 322 uh, BC. The earliest manuscript copies of his works, a part thereof, uh, date from 1100 AD, leaving over 1,400 years between the date on which he penned the originals and the date of the earliest known copies. The Gospels of the Bible have only 25 to 100 years between the originals and the earliest known copies. Moreover, we only have five of those copies of Aristotle's manuscripts. The Bible has over 24,000 copies, yet Aristotle and the things he did are considered evidential and historical fact, while, while the gospel of the Bible, they say, is not. Really? Really? Caesar lived from 100 to 44 BC. The earliest manuscript copies of his original writings date from 900 AD leaving almost 1,000 years between the originals and the copies. The gospel, again, of the Bible have only 25 to 100 years between the originals and the earliest known copies. We have only just 10 copies of Caesar's manuscripts. Again, the Bible has over 24,000 copies. Yet Caesar and the things he did are considered evidential and historical fact, while the Bible while well, the Gospels of the Bible, they say, is not. Say what? Are you kidding me? And finally, we have Plato. Yes, Plato. Plato lived from 427 to 347 BC. The earliest of his manuscripts still existing today date from around 900 AD. That leaves you all more than 1,200 years between his life and the date of his earliest known manuscript copies of his work. Again, the gospel, the gospels of the Bible 
has only 25 to 100 years between the originals and the earliest known copies. We have only seven, just seven manuscript copies of Plato's original works. The Bible has over 24, I don't have that many fingers and toes, 24,000 copies. Yet, yet you all, yet Plato and the things he did are considered by academia, evidential and historical fact, while the Gospels of the Bible, they say, is not. It sounds like somebody's not following their own rules. Looks like, sounds like, and feels like hypocrisy and an unfair double standard to me. Something just doesn't smell right here. As a matter of fact, it stinks of devilish manipulation. In light of the overwhelming historical scientific, scientific evidence that exists where the Bible, the Gospels are concerned, if we are to ex accept as historical fact now, evidential fact, scientific fact, the evidence the world has presented to us that the existence of Aristotle, Caesar, Herodotus, Homer, and Plato, et cetera, et cetera, are true, then Christians using this same criteria must insist, require, and demand that any, and I do mean any, objections to Greenleaf's findings of the Gospels that the existence of, the death of, the burial of, and the resurrection of Jesus, the life of Jesus of Christ, the Bible as being a historical fact, an evidential fact, a scientific fact that would be totally accepted in the United States court of law without a shadow of a doubt as relevant today should and must be necessarily be summarily dismissed, rejected, denied. There cannot be any objection of the gospels. The existence of, the death of, the burial of, and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. If the people of the world and the erudite, the elite aristocrats in academia still insist that the Gospels, the life of Jesus, the Bible is a hoax, a myth, and a non-evidential fact, then we as Christians must demand that every piece of ancient evidence concerning ancient historical figures like Aristotle, Caesar, Herodotus, Homer, Plato, etc., 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 be removed from the category of historical fact, an evidential fact, scientific fact in our, <clears throat> in our institutes of learning and in the world in general and placed in the category of myth, uh, fable, and fiction. Amen. Hallelujah, somebody. The last foundation of any doubt, absolutely any doubt, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the Bible gospels works now in this day and time may finally be established and proved probably to be the most 
authentic, ancient, historical documents known to mankind. That's a glory, hallelujah, amen, somebody praise Jehovah, holy name. That's, you just, you, 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 you are a false witness. Let me, let me put it to you like this so you can get it in the vernacular. A false witness will not willingly detail any circumstances in which his testimony will be open to <clears throat> uh, contradiction, nor multiply them where there is danger of his being detected by a comparison of them with other accounts, equally circumstantial. He would rather deal in general statements and broad assertions like climate change. Well, we'll get in trouble there. The Bible does just the opposite of this. So let me close with this example of how the Bible freely opens itself up to scrutiny or close examination. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 says, quote, For I pass on to you as of first import what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to that which the scriptures foretold, and that he was buried, and that he was bodily raised on the third day according to that which the scripture foretold, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. The majority, listen to this now, the majority of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep in death. Then he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely, prematurely, traumatically born, he appeared to me also. Ladies and gentlemen, that means when they were writing this, the people who witnessed this were still alive. So if they lied about it or didn't get it right, the 500 plus eyewitnesses were there to call them out on it. And the awesome thing about this is that actually, well, they, they said, if you don't believe what we're saying, go check with the eyewitnesses. They're still alive. Wow. <laughs> they weren't afraid. And it was, they believed. They knew it was true. Ladies and gentlemen, if, if it only takes one eyewitness, think about this now, today, in a court of law, to put you on death row, to have your life taken from you. There were more than 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. In a court of law, this would be overwhelming evidence. Case closed. May God bless you and those you love. I'm Brother Bobby Dean. Uh, and I just want to say, if you have not believed in God or come to God, you need to come. Find a church of Christ somewhere. Call us up. We'll get you baptized. We'll get you saved. Hear the word. Jesus is the Son of God. He suffered and died for you. Jesus is the only way 
to God, to heaven. Jesus is your soul's salvation. Through him you have eternal life. You must believe that God is. You must believe in the word of God. You must study the word of God to have faith because you need faith to please God. You must repent of your sins. Whatever they are, you must do a 180 and turn away from them and focus on God. Then you must confess Jesus Christ before the world, before men. You can't hide it under a bushel basket. You've got to tell people, confidence, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. And then that brings you into baptism. And we will take you and baptize you in the watery grave of baptism. When you come up, God will add you to his family, and you will be a child of God. Again, may God bless you and those you love. Remember, the Bible, the Gospels, are the most proven ancient historical documents out there. God bless you.